Hello, folks. Welcome back. It is an absolutely beautiful day here in Salt Lake City. The uh, air is cooler and crisp, but the sun is out. There's not a cloud in the sky. All the windows are open, and there's that nice, fresh fall kind of feeling uh, washing through my space. I absolutely love it. I've got a hot, fresh cup of coffee. Bible's open. Notes are spread out. And um, we're ready to go. This is the On Being Christian Podcast. My name is Nolan Ruby. I'll be your host. I'm also the pastor of the on uh, of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, the Wasatch is the mountain range that runs the length of the Salt Lake City Valley. Um, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for choosing to tune in and to listen. I don't take it lightly. I'd like to bring up a couple things today, and, and as we get started, uh, look into the idea of peace. And I know I'm kind of jumping right into it, but we're getting into that time of year where um, peace on earth, goodwill to men, that type of thing you're going to see and hear, and you'll witness it on signs and all kinds of things. But the concept of peace has been one that has been sitting on me pretty heavy lately, And so as I go to the Word of God and I begin to kind of look around at what the Bible says, uh, obviously there's a lot that the Bible has to say about peace. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, not the least of which being the things the Bible says about it. But I want to come at it from a sort of a different perspective first. I'm going to, I'll just tell you the third point, the thing that we're going to get to that closes this thought out is the idea of what must change in order for us to have peace. Because we all like the concept of peace, we all like the idea of having peace, but we don't actually necessarily link the idea of peace to changes in our own life, changes in our own daily habits. Um, And as it has been said, it's the definition of insanity to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, and yet still somehow within our own minds and hearts expect different results. That's just not how it works. And so that's where I want to end up. But in order to get there, I'd like to look at two points first, the first of which is why there is no peace, and the second of which is the fact that no peace is not the only effect of the things that humanity brings to the table. No peace is not the only effect. There are other effects. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 6 to start off. Jeremiah chapter 6. And if we start by reading verse 10 through verse 15, I think that would be a good good point to start. And then we'll define some terms and jump right into this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, 10 through 15, the Bible says, To whom then, or excuse me, to whom shall I speak? And give warning that they may hear. Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. And their houses shall be turned unto pillars, excuse me, unto others, with their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. 
For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Peace. The specific thing I wanted to draw your attention to there in that opening context is the phrase of the people saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Sometimes we get this idea that just because I say something, in fact, that's the very definition of American politics today. They think that because they said something, it meant something. When in reality, saying something means nothing if you don't do it. Just because you have an opinion doesn't mean that it means anything unless you're willing to apply that opinion to practice. And sometimes when you say my opinion relates peace and history says your opinion has shown to be the opposite of that, there's some uh, differentiation between realities that you're living in there. But the idea here is the concept or the title of this is when there is no peace. And so before we get too far into this, I want you to accept a fact Uh, secularly speaking, uh, nationally speaking, uh, it doesn't matter how many times we say peace, peace, because everyone can look at what's happening right now, and the reality of the situation is very simply, there is no peace. Now let's make that from a macro level to a micro level. Let's look at our individual lives. It would be uh, understandable if you were to say that you would like for there to be peace in your life, peace in your marriage, peace in your relationships, whether they're with your children, your father, your mother, your your family, um, your church, your work environment, peace is a desirable commodity. This is something that we would like to be present in our lives, but peace is something that God owns, and it comes under the stipulation of obeying God's commandments. And we'll get into that in a minute. Let's define some words here. The word peace here is is simply, and you probably already know this, the word for shalom, it's a safe, well, happy, and friendly, and prosperous thing. It's, It's peaceable. It's in or of good health. It's a a perfect presence. And so that's the definition of peace. If I run over to Jeremiah chapter 8, we're in chapter 6 right now. Just jump down to chapter 8 and look at verse 11. The Bible says here, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So two verses that say directly the same thing. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. There, there isn't any peace. And it doesn't matter how many times, times we say that we want peace. It doesn't really matter how desperately we even want it if we're not willing to do the things that it takes to get it. Interesting thought. So I have a bunch of Bible verses here in reference to why there is no peace. And we'll just stay in Jeremiah as we go through these. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 16 says... 
and I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, and have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. And so according to that verse, why do we have no peace? Well, we've forsaken God. We worshiped the works of our own hands. That's why we have no peace. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says, uh, thus, thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity are become and are become vain? In other words, gone far from me, walked far from him and became vain. Why is there no peace? Because we've left God. We've become vain. Vain is a word for empty. If I stay in chapter 2 and look at 7 through 8, and I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear that, folks? The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Why is there no peace? (laughs) I don't know how else to answer your question other than read that verse again. It just simply said the priest, the people who were making, they didn't, consult the Lord. The people who were handling the law, they didn't know the Lord. The pastors, the one who were supposed to be prophesying the law, they transgressed. The prophets prophesied Baal, not God. And everyone walked after things that do not profit. That's why there's no peace. Jump down to verse 13. The Bible says here, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, that's the first evil, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. There's the second evil. They've gotten rid of God for man. They've gotten rid of truth for lies. They've gotten rid of objective reality for subjective reality. They've gotten rid of biological fact for scientific theory, quote unquote, scientific theory. That's why there's no peace. It doesn't matter. We scream peace, peace when we're rejecting everything that actually brings peace. Chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 17 says, Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Verse 19 says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear, or that my fear, is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. He says, this is their own doing. Verse 17, hast thou not procured this unto thyself? Verse 19, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. We've brought this on ourselves. The Bible says that judgment must first start in the house of God. For Christians to look into the world, it's easy for us to point our finger at everyone else and say, well, they need to get things right. But here's what the Bible says. Judgment first starts in the house of God. How have you ever wondered 
why everything has gone so far away from God. Maybe it's because churches have become institutions of this is how we do it and not institutions of this is what the Bible says. If I stay in chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter 2 of Jeremiah, go down to verse 32, the Bible says, Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Oh my. Verse 34, Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search but upon all these. You say, well, there's no peace. Why is there no peace? We've forgotten the Lord. And the last time that we knew him, we don't even remember. The Bible says days without number. In verse 34, the, the, our hands are, are bloody. And it's not even like we're hiding it. We're, we're, we're making it known. We're having riots about how proud we are to be degradating the Word of God. We're having uh, people literally take to the streets in pride over things like abortion, which is murder, and we're asking ourselves why there is no peace. Hmm. I don't know that there's really that you know, big of a mystery as to why there's no peace. If I go to chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says, Lift up thine eyes into the high places, and see where thou hast not been lying with. In the ways hast thou set uh, for them uh, as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Why do we have no peace? The land has been polluted, the Bible says, with whoredoms, and with wickedness. Wickedness, folks. Wickedness does exist. Whoredom. The selling of things that shouldn't be for sale. Verse 8 says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. We have these two words, adultery and played the harlot. Why is there no peace? We have no. We feared not. The Bible says, verse eight, uh, ch chapter three, verse eight. I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding, I had put her away, given her a bill. They feared not. There was no fear. There was no. There was not. There, we didn't care what the Bible says. We were doing it our own way. Chapter 3, verse 13, the Bible says, Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered the ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Why is there no peace? We haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so hath ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. We have dealt treacherously with our God. Verse 21 says, A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Verse 25 says, 
We lie down in our shame, and our our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth, even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Why is there no peace? Because we've gotten rid of God. We've not obeyed. We've rejected him on every turn. Chapter 4, verse 17 The Bible says, as keepers of a field, are they against her roundabout because she hath been rebellious against me, saith the Lord. Rebellion. We have rebelled against God. Verse 22, for my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. You say, why is there no peace? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Why is there no peace? Because we don't know how to do good. We, we are very clever at doing evil. We can use the law, and the Bible talked about it. Those that practice the law don't know good. We can use the law to cover up everything. We're more concerned today with what's legal and care very little about what's moral. And the longer we go, the more legal we make that which is immoral. And we ask God why there's no peace. Because we've gotten rid of him. Listen, folks, without morality, there is no peace. Morality is what brings peace. Morality. And morality's definition belongs to the God who is moral, not men who are immoral. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 3 The Bible says, O Lord, are not thine eyes uh, upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have not refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Refusing correction is one way that we have no peace. Chapter 5 and verse 6, Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evenings shall spoil them, a leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. Why do we have no peace? Our transgressions are many. Verse 7 says, How shall we pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are not gods. When I had fed them to the fool, to the full, they then committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. We are. Do you know what one of the number one exports in America is today? It's pornography. That is one of the number one global exports of the American economy. Pornography. And we wonder why there's no peace, because we, as a nation, are committing adultery against the God who formed us, who founded us. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5, 11 through 12, the Bible says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dwelt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have bellied, uh, excuse me, belayed the Lord and said, It is not he. Neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine. (laughs) The Bible says uh, we are willingly ignorant of these things. 
Chapter 5, verse 23, the Bible says, But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Chapter 5 and verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? Why is there no peace? Because we're doing things our way, pursuing our own agenda, more concerned with legality and not morality, rejecting God on every turn. That's why there's no peace. And we can scream peace, peace all we want, but there won't be any, not as long as we're rejecting God. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 7, the Bible says, As a fountain casteth out her waters, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her before me continually is grief and wounds. Grief and wounds, violence continually. Why is there no peace? Wickedness, violence, and spoil. That's why there's no peace. Chapter 6 and verse 13, the Bible says, Far from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. Verse 15 says, were they, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not ashamed at all, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, shall they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And so if we were to look at all those verses that I just read and ask myself the question, why is there no peace? Well, just highlights, wickedness hath forsaken me, gone far from me, become vain, defiled the land, the pastors have transgressed, they have forsaken, we've played the part of the harlot, we've forgotten him, we have the blood of the poor innocents upon our hands, we've polluted the land with whoredoms, we've feared not, we've not obeyed his voice, we've dealt treacherously with him, we have perverted his ways, we have sinned, we are rebellious and revolting, we are wise to do evil, we refuse to seek correction, transgressions are many, we're committing adultery, we've belied the Lord, dismissed him, we are revolting and rebellious in our hearts, we prophesy falsely, we have wickedness and violence and spoil at every turn, we're given to covetousness, and we're not ashamed. And then we say, well, okay, but where's the peace? <laughs> The peace is linked to the opposite of all those things Jeremiah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 laid out. That's why there's no peace. Transgressed is a word that was used, which is a word that means the violation of law. Forsaken is just a word that means abandoned. The Bible says we've played the part of the harlot. The word harlot is a word that means composed of lewd cravings. Lewd or tending forward toward lewdness, the forsaking of truth. Whoredom is just a word that simply means the practice of unlawful commerce. Treacherously, the Bible says we've dealt treacherously with him, which is a word that means a breach of allegiance. It is a deceitful or underhanded, faithless, deliberate action. We have perverted his ways, the Bible says, and perverted is a word that means to turn from the truth by distorting or misdirecting or misapplying and misinterpreting the truth and doing it knowingly and willingly. 
Boy, that's exactly where we are today. We are rebellious, which is a word that means the renunciation of authority, revolting. What do you think the riots of 2020 were grounded in? You think they were grounded in just cause? No, they weren't. They were grounded in rebellion, open, revolting against authority. The word belied is used. We belied him, which means to be untrue. The idea being through all of these verses here that there is no peace because all that is being done, the manner of everyday living, does not produce peace. Not because people don't want peace, but because the lives they are living are being are producing the opposite of peace. And number two, that was all number one, why there is no peace. And number two, there is no peace, or the fact that there is no peace is not the only effect. The fact that there is no peace is not the only effect of these decisions we've made. If we jump all the way back, and we're just staying in Jeremiah as we go through all these, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible says, And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. The Bible says, I will utter my judgments. Folks, I weep for America when I remember that God is just. I don't remember who said that. It wasn't me, but that's coming. That is coming. Chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 3, the Bible says Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Evil shall come upon them. Verse 14 um, says this, same chapter, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Spoiled. Verse 27, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, arise and save us. For time's sake, I'm just going to give you these. Chapter 1, verse 16, I will utter my judgment. 2, 3 says, evil shall come upon them. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, why is he spoiled? Uh, 27 says, in the time of their trouble. 30 says, smitten your children. Chapter 2, verse 37, rejected their confidences. Chapter 3, verse 3, showers are withholden. Verse 8, I had put her away. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7, the lion has come up to desolate. To, to desolate. Chapter 4, verse 10, the sword reacheth unto the soul. Verse 12, I give sentence against them. Verse 13, we are spoiled. Verse 18, procured in wickedness. Verse 19, I cannot hold my peace. Verse 20, destruction upon destruction. Chapter 4, verse 28, shall the earth mourn? 29, every city forsaken? Chapter 5, verse 6, slay them, spoil them. Chapter 5, verse 14, I will, I will, verse 15, excuse me, I will bring a nation upon you. Verse 17, they shall impoverish you. Verse 30, a wonderful and horrible thing. Chapter 6, verse 11, I will pour it out. Verse 12, I will stretch out my hand. Verse 15, they shall fall. It goes on to say, be cast down. The effect is not only no peace, folks, but it will. it is also all which is listed above. 
Everything that I just said, righteousness brings peace. Only righteousness, everything else, all else only brings death. And so peace, peace, when there is no peace, why is there no peace? Because we are evil and we are pursuing evilness instead of righteousness. And that's not the only effect of our evil is there's no peace. There's, there's also going to be judgment and trouble and desolation and sentencing and destruction upon destruction. Chapter 4, verse 20 says, and so peace, the idea of peace is a wonderful one. We would define uh, that as something that we would like in our lives, but peace is linked to God's power, not mine. And if I want something that belongs to God, I must do the things that God says to do. If I want peace in my life, it will only be possible through the doctrine of the Word of God applied to my life. I cannot produce it. I can only accept it. And so peace, peace, when there is no peace. Why is there no peace? Because we're making life about our desires and our directions and our wants and not God's desires and directions and wants. And when we put him last and ourselves first, the inevitable result is all the things that we just read in the first six chapters of Jeremiah. Horrible impoverishment, destruction, judgment. Nothing good. So now I want to tell you what must change. What must change in order for there to be peace? We all like the concept of peace. We like the idea of peace being applied to our lives. So how do we do that? What is the first step to that? Well, there's three things I want to look at. Excuse me, four things that I'd like to look at concerning what must change. The first thing is found in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 15. Jeremiah 6.15, the Bible says here, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. You know what must change first before we can have peace in our lives, in our relationships, in our careers, on in our country? We must learn how to be ashamed. Ashamed is a word that means affected or convicted of criminal action or conduct. It's a conscience of guilt and the mortification or the death of pride. Shame. We must learn how to be ashamed of sin. Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 12, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. It says this same thing in chapter 6, verse 15, and chapter 8, verse 12. We have forgotten how to be ashamed. Ashamed of things the Bible says should cause us shame. That's what must first change. A couple of verses on this, or a couple of references. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, the Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and look what it says here, despising the shame, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross, but he despised the shame. Jesus Christ knew how to be ashamed of sin. 
We must know that shame is the result of sin. We have gotten rid of our shame. It's so hard now for us to blush. We've been exposed to so many things. We've seen so many things. It's hard for us to see something and not feel different about it because we are so hard and so exposed. And the Bible says, if you want peace, you must learn to be ashamed of the things that get rid of peace. If I jump back all the way over into the Old Testament here, um, let's see here, Psalm 31, or the 31st Psalm, if you will, and verse um, 17 The Bible says here, let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed and let them be silent in the grave. Let the wicked be ashamed, David said in that psalm. We must learn, folks, how to be ashamed. If we don't learn how to be ashamed, we'll never have peace in our lives, in our relationships. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And so here we see we've got two choices. We can embrace the things of this secular world and be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which results in wickedness, which results in a lack of peace, or we can learn to be ashamed of the things of this world and embrace the doctrine and faith and repentance and trust that is commanded by the Bible and made possible by God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we can have peace. Peace through the Prince of Peace, by obedience to God's Word. Again, we're not overcomplicating this. I can either be ashamed of the Lord or I can be ashamed of this world and myself. Being ashamed of this world and myself and accepting the Lord brings peace. Being ashamed of the Lord and embracing my own ideas, my direction, the world, it brings lack of peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. If you jump over to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verse 26 the Bible says here, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his holy glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. says this in several points throughout the gospel. If I jump back over to the Old Testament, I'll go to Psalms. Psalms chapter 37. Let's see what that shows us here. Psalm chapter 37, 18 through 19, the Bible says, The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. What must change in order for me to have peace? What must change in order for someone to ensure peace in their life, their relationships, their marriage, all the different aspects of Christianity? Folks, we must learn to be ashamed of things that bring the lack of peace. If I'm never ashamed of the things that bring the lack of peace, I'll continue to put those things into my life, and peace will become further and further and further from me. Number two, if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 13, the Bible says, 
For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, every one dealeth falsely. Folks, we must learn to deal truthfully. Number one, we must be ashamed. Number two, we must deal truthfully. Everyone dealeth falsely. Jeremiah 8.10 says, From the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Falsely is simply a term by application which means deceit or wrong action. We've learned how to tell lies as long as the lies give us what we want in the short term, but lies in the long term will always destroy any benefit you might have had in the short term. If I want peace, I must learn how to tell the truth, except only the truth. By the way, let me tell you something. It is as important to accept only the truth as it is to tell only the truth. Someone comes to you and tells you a flat-out, bold-face lie. You have absolutely zero requirement to accept that, regardless of what they say it makes them feel. Someone comes up and tells you a lie about their person, and you say, I don't accept that, and they make it some kind of horrible thing. Well, you're not accepting me as I am. No, you don't have to accept people as they are. You have to, have, you have to accept truth as it is. When someone denies the truth, you have no obligation to be a liar with them. Live not by lies. You must live in the truth. And when you don't, the lack of peace is the inevitable result. Truth matters. And I'm not talking about subjective, personal truth, which isn't a truth. It's an opinion. I'm talking about biblical, scientific, real-life truth. Real truth matters. And if you choose to ignore it, you're guaranteed you're guaranteeing that you're going to have uh, turmoil in your life. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. Let me show you some verses on this. Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 22. The Bible here says, Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Lies are an abomination. Whether you tell it or whether you don't makes no difference, folks. You must live in the truth. You don't have to live by lies because someone tells you that you accepting their lie about themselves or about you makes them feel better. I don't care how you feel, and I love you, but I don't care how you feel. I care about the truth. And when you decide that what you want isn't the truth and the truth scares you, well, I, I, with all due respect and with all the compassion I can muster, grow up. Grow up and live in the truth. John chapter 4, verse 24, the Bible says here, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God will not be worshipped by the lies of men. He will only be worshipped by what he in his word Laid out as the truth. Verse John chapter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You cannot love with a lie. You can only love with truth. Objective truth. Not subjective opinion. Objective truth. That's what love looks like.
Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 13 says this, Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. Righteous lips are the delight of kings. Folks, you must learn and love to live in the truth. Anything else for you as a Christian should be absolutely 100% unacceptable. John chapter 16 and verse 13, the Bible says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Truth. That is what brings peace. Psalm 145. Get over to where I need to be. Psalm 145, and let's look at what it says in verse 18. The Bible says here, The Lord is nigh unto all them that, are, that call upon him. To all that call upon him, and here's the most important words, in truth. In truth. You can't call on the Lord in a lie. He's not listening. The Lord deals with those who deal in the truth. And if I choose to live by a lie, I can expect the lack of peace to be the inevitable conclusion of all of my decisions. So what must change in order for there to be peace? Well, number one, I must learn to be ashamed of the sin that separates me from God. And number two, I must choose the truth over everything else, no matter what, 100% of the time, accepting nothing more and nothing less than the very clear, very simple truth of the matter. Number three, we must be content. Jeremiah 6.13, if we look at that, that starts off by saying, um, for the least of them, even under the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. They're given to covetousness. You see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 10. It says, the least unto the greatest is given to covetousness. Covetousness is a word that means plunder, unjust or dis dishonest gain, lucre, filthy lucre or profit. Profit. Why do we have no peace? Because everyone's given to profit. And by the way, profit and value are two different things profit. I served in the United States Marine Corps. I served uh, five different deployments. Four of those, um, well, three of them were combat deployments. I saw combat in four of them. And then five deployments all around the world, over 20 different countries. One of the things I learned as a young, early, in the late teens, early 20s, you know, just a kid out of high school in the United States Marine Corps, was that war is big business, big business, big money, big money. It's hard to seek peace when war pays so well. I'm just telling you the truth. You can take that, put it wherever you want, but that's the reality of the situation. Why do we have no peace? We're not content. 
Somebody once told me, what does every man want? And the answer is very simple. It's more. That's what every man wants. Folks, if you can't learn to be content with such things as ye have, you'll never have peace in your life. We live in a culture that is constantly pushing the next greatest thing. you got to have the next vehicle, the next piece of technology, the next house. You're always comparing everything you own to that which everybody else owns, and that is a never-ending, always-consuming, soul-sucking way to live. But when I choose, very simply, to be content and happy with the things the Lord's given me, you'd be shocked how much peace is directly linked to being content in the things the Lord has given you. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 16 says this, The prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor, but he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. Did you catch that? When I want in other words, I have no understanding. I have no wisdom. My life is based off the contents of my wallet and the, and the number in my bank account. The Bible says it, 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 there's nothing there. The prince that wanteth understanding, that he's a great oppressor. He oppresses a pressure. He's just more, more, more. I want more. I want more. But he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. You tell me where the bigger definition of value is. A short-term life lived with financial gain or a long life lived in the contentment and joy of the Lord? I know which one I'll pick. If I go over to Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, the Bible says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And whenever I see that word beware, that's not a word that you use in in front of something that's good. You know, no one's ever said to me, beware, that's a delicious piece of cheesecake. <laughs> no one's ever said that. But there are beware of dog signs on fences all over my yard. And you know what's really interesting? On all of those fences that have those beware of dog signs, those yards don't contain a chihuahua. Usually they have some nasty, drooling, spiked collar-looking thing that very clearly uh, makes me not want to go in that yard. And here we have that word beware related to covetousness. The Bible says covetousness is something that I should be scared of, and if I'm not, the lack of peace is the inevitable result of the lack of contentment. Hebrews chapter 13. Let me jump over that real quick. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Boy, what else do you want? And I'm sure the list is long, but in reality, if he will never, he, God the Father, if he will never leave thee nor forsake thee, what else do you want? What else are you going to compare 
to a relationship with God the Father. Be content. The lack of contentment is inevitable lack of peace. It's just the way it is. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify is a word that means to kill. And you have two things here, inordinate affection, in other words, my desire for things that are not in keeping with my capacity, and covetousness. Covetousness, the sin of the lust of the eyes. The Bible says kill those things, because if I don't, those things will kill me. If I go to the 119th Psalm, back up here, Psalm 119, it's the largest chapter in the Bible. I always enjoyed reading Psalm 119. If we go, go to verse 36, the Bible says here, incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and then very clearly, look what it says, and not to covetousness. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. David knew one thing very well. The, the covetousness will bring a lack of peace and on a long enough timeline will bring death. What's the opposite of that? How do I have peace? Incline my heart unto thy testimonies. Testimonies being a, a concept or a word for his word, his Bible. If I stay in Psalms, go to the 10th Psalm. The 10th Psalm, and we'll go to verse 3. The Bible says, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Boy, if that's not America today, we bless the covetousness of this world. The Bible says the Lord abhors it. He absolutely abhors it. And so number one, what must change in order for me to have peace? Peace, peace, there is no peace because we're wicked and we've rejected God. What must change? Number one, we must be ashamed. We must learn to feel shame for sin. Number two, we must be truthful. Refuse, flat out refuse to live in anything except for the truth. Period. Number three, we must be content. We must abhor covetousness. We must, we must, you know, it's really hard to want more things, to focus on wanting more things when I'm focused on the things I already have. I have a small house, but it's a beautiful house. My wife does great things to it. I have a wife, some children, three children, and uh, our home is a happy place. It's a modest place, and it's a happy place. We're not working for the sake of being able to afford to live there. We can live there and be happy. We enjoy each other's company. We drive older vehicles. I don't know what to tell you. We, folks, I'm not complaining. I, the Lord is blessed on every front, on every front. And I'm, I'm not perfect. There's things I want. But it's really hard to focus on those things when you keep your eyes on the things the Lord's already given you. Let's look at the fourth and final thing. We must be ashamed. We must live in the truth. 
We must be content. And number four, we must delight in the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 10. Our text here gives us these words. It says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, the ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. The word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. What must change in order for me to have peace? I must delight in the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, They have rejected the word. Delight means to bend, to be pleased with, to desire, to favor. To favor. There's two ways I think of this word delight. One is from uh, like a, a dominant position, and one is from a subservient position. And if I were to use the relationship between a father and a son, a very young son, two, three years old, a son who delights in his father will run to his father when he shows up, put his arms up, and expect to be picked up. When I was, a, when I was younger, and when my family was younger, I would, uh, we had a split-level home. You'd come into the garage, and the home was kind of split to the side. You could, there was a foyer there, and you could either go downstairs or you could go upstairs. And when I would come home, I learned my kids had this little game that when they heard the garage open, they would get into the kitchen because you could go to the corner of the kitchen, and you could see across the living room down the stairs to the door that opened up to the garage. And as soon as I would open the door from the garage into the foyer, my kids would start running. And here's what they were going to do. They were going to get to the, the very top of the stair, and they're going to jump. And I'm expected to catch them. That's delight. I, I learned pretty quick, uh, when I come home, don't have anything in my hands. Because if I had anything in my hands, it would have to drop to the floor for me to catch a flying child. Okay? That's delight. They, de I, they delighted in my presence. They wanted me to be there. And there was a simple trust from them to me, dad's going to catch me. And so they came flying. That's the subservient position. The dominant position is from me to them. I delighted in them. Okay? I didn't ever have such a long day at work or such a dissatisfied day at work that I wasn't looking forward to opening that door and catching a flying child. It just never happened. And so when you delight in the word of the Lord, it's a very subservient position. It's literally the picture of a child who puts their arms up and expects to be picked up and comforted. That is the relationship of a Christian who loves God. We must learn to delight in his word, to take pleasure in his word. You see this all throughout the Bible. I'll just give you a few references, Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm chapter 18 and verse 19, Psalm 18, 19, the Bible says, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Psalm 119, I think I've told you this before. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. There is 176 verses 
in Psalm 119. And in those 176 verses, I believe that's what there is. Let me just double check. In those 176 verses, there is 183 mentions to the Word of God. 183 mentions to the Word of God. In 176 verses. The word word is used 44 times. The word commandments is used 23 times. The word law 23 times. The word testimony 23 times. Status is used 20, or statutes, excuse me, used 22 times. Judgment 21 times. Precepts 19 times. Ways 7 times. And ordinance 1. That is a psalm written by a man who delighted in the word of God. And those are the things that must change for us to have peace. So, number one, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Why is there no peace? Because we've turned our back on God. We've chased our own desires. We have no fear of him. We've obeyed not his voice. We've sinned. We've become rebellious. We refuse to be corrected and transgress every aspect of the word of God. This will bring, number two, the effect of no peace, which is judgment, rejection, of thy confidence, destruction upon destruction, Jeremiah 4, verse 20 says. But this can all change. How will it change? Four things. We must learn to be ashamed. We must learn to deal truthfully. And when I say deal truthfully, I mean not just speak the truth, but accept nothing but the truth. Live not by lies. Just absolutely refuse to live in any world where subjective opinion is more important than objective reality. And folks, we used to know this. It used to be okay to say things like there are only two genders, but for whatever ridiculous subjective reason, this has become one of the most taboo subjects in our country, and I can't get my mind around it. It's absolute stupidity, if you ask me. It's a lie, and you don't have to live by it. You can reject it and live in the truth. Number three, you must be content. Quit wanting everything you can't have and learn to love the things you already have. There's more joy in that than there could be in anything you don't have. And number four, we must delight in the word of God. We must truly take pleasure in being in the presence of our Father. I'll tell you this story and I'm done. You know, sometimes I would come home and the child wouldn't come running. Do you know why? Because they had been told, wait till your dad gets home. And I was the last person they wanted to see. Do you know why I was the last person they wanted to see? That you know, In other words, they were not delighting in my company. Why? Because they were opposite me. They were opposite my wife, which is me. And I had to go find them. When they were hiding. In fact, that's what Adam did in the garden. When God came to talk to him, he said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I hid. Why did he hide? Because he sinned. And that sin separated him from a relationship with God. So how do I have a relationship with God? How do I delight? Well, I must first accept him as my Savior. I must accept his grace made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ and apply that to my heart. And when I say apply it, he applies it. I just by faith accept the fact that he said he would. And when I do that, 
I have a reconciled relationship with my Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in that reconciled relationship, I have shame of sin. I deal truthfully, which means I reject lies. I'm content with such things as I have, and I love his word. Those are the things that must change. Folks, thanks so much for being with me. I'm going to have a word of prayer and be totally and completely done. I'll leave these things with you and the Lord and let him solve them or bring them to a conclusion that brings glory to his name. Father, thank you so much for the time you've given us to be together. I pray that you would bless us now as we separate in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I love you. I'll see you next time. God bless.